But it Piggy. does. What? You... But go ahead, please. No, please. No, please. I was going to transition, so you know you're. Well, welcome no, I, to... I was just going to say. <laughs> like trying to get the words out, I got nothing. You all right? <laughs> Hello and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. That was a pause. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, that's the new thing I do now is I add dramatic pauses. Okay. Like this. I'm waiting with bated breath, damn it. Well, wait no more, because today <laughs> we have a great guest, Rand Fishkin, who's the co-founder and CEO of SparkTuro. They make very fine audience research software. Uh, Rand was also the founder of Moz. He is an author. He wrote a book called Lost and Founder, which I love. Um, and he spends his life helping people, uh, giving talks, educating folks, speaking his mind. You will see in today's interview that he does just that. It was it was refreshing. It was very honest. I mean, very that is honest. that's who Rand is. So, I mean, we'll let the interview speak for itself. We can talk about Rand after the fact. But yeah. uh, what's got you talking to that today, Sylvie? Today, I hate to do the one where I'm talking too loud in like an angry sense, but... Yeah, then just don't do it. Do something else. All right, let me... I got to pivot to happy talking too loud. Happy talking to... Happy, happy. Happy, you happy. Think happy thoughts. <laughs> think happy thoughts. <laughs> you're just saying... I feel like I know yours. I, I'm i over here thinking I know what you're going to say. <laughs> really? Yeah, you're like, oh, it's huge tennis head now. Just went to the US <laughs> Open. No big deal. I see you in person and you're just like, tennis, tennis, what's happening with tennis? Oh, are you following it? Oh, I'm a huge tennis, you're a okay. huge tennis head. I have been talking too loud about tennis. It's true. You got me. And it it is a happy talking too loud because my God, these athletes are incredible. Like, it's the only sport where it's just you out there. The psychology of just like you what have about to wrestling. No. What about uh, MMA? Stop. What about racing? Stop. What about car racing? Okay. <laughs> what about golf? You, you poke some holes in my, <laughs> in my Look, strong I think open. I think you're blinded by a love by the of light. the game. I think you're blinded by a blind okay, well, light. Blinded what, by I, love. what I meant was, let me finish. Let me try again. Let me finish. <laughs> Forget it. Get it. Let's move on to what's got you talking to. Let me go finish. Um, me. But tennis, uh, tennis, 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 tennis. Yes, yes. I am. Uh, I'm very excited to be watching my sister's dog, Louie. Look at that doggy. He is like. Uh, he's got me made. This guy. I am the only one apparently that he can trick to giving him uh, multiple dinners. Uh -huh. He'll like eat. You know, he eats dinner at. Around 3 p.m. <laughs> Early bird ate. catches the worm. <laughs> and he, but if someone else feeds him, he comes to me and acts like he hasn't eaten. And unfortunately, he's tricked me a few you times. You fall for it every time. The other day, he's going bananas. And I'm like, what is this guy doing? He's going to pee on the floor. He's going to do something. And so he's like, going to the door. I'm like, all right, I got to take him out. So I take him out. And he just runs me over and he goes over to the car and starts putting his paw on the door because my sister's not here. And he wants to take, I think, take him to see my sister. Interesting. I feel like you have, you've developed a real rapport with this dog. There are tricks. There's like, I'm you sensing know, your needs. I think, don't they say that like, I, I mean, he's not my dog, but don't they say that like a dog and their owner become one? And I feel like I too am like Louie. I need an early dinner now. <laughs> I get really hangry. Okay. I put on a show. He's like a circus dog. So- in any case, we don't need to go any deeper into that because this is we've, we might have gone too far. Uh, that seems very possible. Never, never too far. <laughs> I think it's, it's just far enough. Speaking, speaking of just going far enough, yeah. let's cut to the interview with Rand. Rand, welcome to the show. So good to see you. Chris, lovely to be here. Sylvie, thanks for having me. I like your studio. This is do oh, you beautiful see, studio. You see oh, the color coded yeah. books. I've got I've got my bookshelf. I have my I have my Adventure Time art. Uh, Geraldine That's made nice. these uh, a few years ago for for various birthdays and Hanukkahs. I got my new uh, flag. Some friends had a uh, had a kid come out and and she gave me her uh, her trans pride flag. So now I keep that in my office. I got you know all sorts of stuff. I like it. That's awesome. 
<laughs> I feel like between our screens, like I'm basically dressed in white with a white background. You have like so much color going on. It's great. It makes it's sense. a nice contrast. You've yes. always known me as a colorful guy. I mean, I think you're a guy who can take a risk with a shirt and you can pull it off. <laughs> this is this is a t-shirt. This is a t-shirt. This is basically your t-shirt, but it has this little decal oh, thing. And then yeah. it came with this nice, you know, cardigan. Look at that little combo. That's really nice. That's because very... nice combo. Yeah. Because Italy has style. Right? <laughs> like that is <laughs> that, the end of the day. We don't need to record anymore. That's it. That's the podcast. That's it. We got it's it. It's done. We got it. And apparently I am a fit for most Italian styles. So this is, it just works out great. I know you just go there to shop. I no mean, I go there for a lot of reasons, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, Rand, we've made a lot of content together over the years. Not enough. Are you, not <laughs> enough though. That's, that's changing right now. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, that's changing with this and many secret things coming soon. So be on the lookout. Um, but, you know, obviously this show is called Talking Too Loud because when I get excited, I cannot control the volume of my voice. It turns out this is genetic. My kids also, in particular, Olympia. Oh, yes. She is. She is extremely loud. <laughs> I remember this from when we were over at your house and it was like, yes. OK, when she was into a toy, like, wow. Yeah. 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 She's crazy. <laughs> uh, so so I have to start. And like, what's what's got you talking too loud these days? So many things. So many things. All right. All right. So uh, on the on the I'm excited about this. This is going amazing side. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but I am the creative director for a video game um, oh. that is uh, being done by a studio called Akupara down in Los Angeles. And, you know, we're sort of funding the initial demo development. And also um, I'm jumping into Slack every day and learning all sorts of things about game development and and designing mm. this world and approving art assets and Holy crap, it's incredible. Um, it's an amazing experience and it's extremely different, but also has lots of overlap with kind of software development stuff that I've done before. Also, I have like sort of anger and frustration issues around real estate generally. So I have, mm. you know, lots of friends in the in the Northwest, in Seattle and Portland in particular. You know, there's been a small sort of rise in crime and a significant rise in homelessness because of the pandemic. And I cannot get over how intelligent people uh, who have good ethics and good values don't understand what's happening or why and want to solve it the wrong ways. And it, it pisses me off. Uh, I get very angry. I spend lots of time talking way too loud to my friends and sort of grabbing them. What do, why don't you understand this? Rented <laughs> prices are directly correlated with homelessness. Like you yeah. can't have a wealthy city where you make homes unaffordable and then complain that you have unhoused people not allowed. Either your home prices stay where they are or go down or anyway, blah, blah, blah. So this is <laughs> yeah. my current soapbox that I like to get on. I, I feel like you've got major topics for us <laughs> that we could go into, Yeah, but I think we should veer toward the one. <laughs> oh, are we only talking about one of these? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We're going to talk about much more. But I think even of the, the things that you're talking too loud about right now, we could spend hours on any of them. And <laughs> most of them we can't solve. I want to go back to the video game for a second. So you decide you want to make a video game. Like, obviously, it's very different from the day to day for you yeah. in terms of like, you know, running a SaaS business, have done that before, have scaled it, have like, you know, you're using the analytics and your intuition and your creativity to constantly like, grow and evolve this thing. And then here's this other thing that feels very hits based. You get one shot, right? You only yeah, so get how do, one how, shot. How do you think about this? Yeah. How do you get into doing it? What can we expect? Like, how do you how do you think about it? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, from a business and marketing perspective, from a you know sales perspective, like it is the absolute inverse of developing a, a SaaS product, yeah. right? Like a Wistio <laughs> or a Spark Toro, where you know, with, with SparkToro, every day we're sort of making little changes and optimizing things and trying to learn more about our customers and then make the product a little better, right? And the hope is, you know, in two or three or four years, MRR goes up and up and up. And with a video game, uh, it's basically, it's like making a movie or writing a book. You know, you kind of hit publish and that's it. You, sure, you can optimize a few things afterward. You can send some updates you know, thankfully, video games are rarely sold on store shelves anymore. So at least you, you can update it. But really, it's just about that 
the product at launch. And this is this is one of the things that interests me so much about the video game space as compared to other hits driven businesses. So for example, okay. you know, um, Sylvie and Chris, I'm sure you like have music that you think is excellent and it's not very popular or movies that you think are amazing and very few mm -hmm. people have seen them. Maybe those movies even lost money. Same with television. Show. That's the only type of movie that Sylvie likes. <laughs> <laughs> the sinkers the, sink the sinkers yeah i mean and and reasonably so I, I think often in a lot of these you know artistic genres movies is a great one plays musicals yeah. um yeah poetry right there a the market you know th there's lots of money in it but it almost all goes to a very small number of publications right like yeah the thor 4 movie could be terrible i haven't seen it but it's going to make a ton of money, right? Like Marvel doesn't yeah. have to do yeah, anything, yeah. whatever. It doesn't matter. And then movie that, you know, you might want to produce for a couple million dollars could be absolutely incredible. The best movie in 20 years, and it probably won't attract much of an audience. But video games are different. Video games, almost always sales is very well correlated to product quality. So if the mm. game is incredibly fun and unique and interesting and... Uh, it, it will do well. You could argue that mm. some games that are kind of terrible do well because of the publisher and the history and whatever, and that is true. But the cool thing about independent video games is there are literally tens of millions of people waiting on Steam and Nintendo Switch and PlayStation and Xbox for a new game to come out, looking at the store every day, checking out every new game that might be available and seeing if they're interested in it. And so if you make something that is high quality that starts generating some buzz and, you know, people on YouTube are playing it and people are, you know, posting it to their TikTok They're streaming it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It will do well. And it's very difficult to make a crappy product, especially a crappy product without a brand name behind it, do well in spite of the crappiness. Mm. Hmm. So so it feels it feels like a fair fight. It's an equalizer. Yeah. Video games is one of the only artistic mediums where it's a fair fight. That's exactly right. And that is what attracted me to it. I was like, damn, you know, I've always wanted to be more artistic um, in, in what I do. And I've always felt a little, I don't know, constrained by sort of the B2B software mm. world, which I love. And it has lots of aspects that I lean into. And, and still, obviously, I do it every day. But I wanted to lean into my artistic side. And so during the pandemic, Geraldine was like, my, my wife, was like Rand, don't wait until you know Spark Toro sells, or you know you you know you move on to the next thing. You don't need to wait until you're fifty or fifty-five. Who knows if you'll even want to do it in a decade? Just do it. Just go put it together. Take savings. You know, like she's like, we're doing okay. Yeah. You know, take some of our savings, put it into it, see if you can raise some money for it, whatever. And so that's exactly what I did. I sort of spent some time just you know pouring through all the information I could find. I found this guy who runs a like game design community uh, in Europe. And he he's actually now the game designer, the, the part time game designer on our game. And, you know, he was like training me up and I'm learning all this stuff about how to do it and how to recruit a team. And I started networking into, hey, does anybody know anybody in this world? Can you yeah. connect me with studios? And then I interviewed a bunch of studios. Then Moz sold last year, almost exactly a year ago. And, you know, it was not I mean, we can talk about this too, right? This gets into some drama and seriousness and ugliness and all that kind of mess, but- um, We like it all. We yeah. like the mess. We like the, keep going Trust with me. the games. It'll be, I mean, the, the mess is just, it just goes so deep. It goes so deep. Oh, so damn, okay. But, oh but- You're the most transparent person ever, Rand. It's, it's, hey, it's amazing. I know it stresses you out sometimes, but it's absolutely incredible. I think it's well, amazing. So, yeah. I mean, so, so here's the story, right? Like you're familiar with the venture funding model. So a lot of people who joined Moz, who did great work, had stock options, right? And those stock options are only worth something if Moz's sale price was sort of above certain numbers. And, you know, every dollar above that is something more meaningful and um, every dollar below is, is not. And so, you know, when, when Moz sold, I'll, I'm not allowed to disclose the sale price. I had to sign the NDAs and blah, blah, blah. But I think Geraldine called it. She was like, I am the most angry someone who's made a ludicrous amount of money can be. You know, so we still owned a very large portion, I think 
uh, close to 20% of the company. So even though the sale price was not what one might hope for, you know, we got yeah, large you guys checks. Were fine. Um, yeah. And uh, and one of the first things we did was go into Carta, which is, you know, it, it shows you sort of all the all the people who have stock options and how much and how much they're, they're kind of going to make. And we were just like, this is um, And so we, in the sort of 30, 40 days afterward, we sat down and wrote cards to, you know, Ma's people, ex-employees, folks we had worked with, I had worked with, and, yeah. um, and then put big honking checks in there. And I think we spent $700,000 sort of topping people wow, up. Wow, man. Holy, um, wow. holy moly. Uh, which, you know, was not, it's more money than we ever had in savings. <laughs> and yeah. also um, as, as a percent, a significant percent, but not a problematic number, which is also kind of insane, right? And it shows you yeah. what goes on. Like, yes, technically I worked at Moz longer than anyone else, but only by a few years. Did I really work that much harder? Did I do that much better work than any team member? Why is my reward, you know, a hundred X or a thousand X what anybody else made? It, it just doesn't, you know, it's not logical. It doesn't make sense. It's very late stage capitalist problematic. But one of the beautiful things that happened from that was, well, two beautiful things happened. One, we called up um, Geraldine's cousins and we're like, you go to college and you go to college and you go oh, to college, yeah, right? So amazing. covering, awesome. um, yeah. yeah, family college funds. That was something special. Um, did you know Russ Jones? Yes, yeah. I think so. He was out in, out in Raleigh and he, he passed away just, just about a week after the sale. Oh, wow. He, he didn't pass away from um, COVID, but you know, COVID had sort of pre prevented him from going to the doctor for a long time. And he had an undiagnosed heart condition. and. It's just, oh man, yeah, really, really super sad, right? So you know, we were yeah. close with him and and his wife and his three girls, and so we got to put you know put some funds into their college fund, and um, yeah, but you know, trying to do some 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 right things here, and also you know, called up uh, the the game studio and was like, hey, the budget for the game just went way up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's some, I mean, first of all, Rand, like that's some heavy stuff, man, the whole thing. And I appreciate you sharing it because most people never talk about this and it does impact, you know, how other people can structure their time, structure their companies. So I, I just really, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that. And also, I mean, it's completely in character. Like when you would do the updates on Moz while you were running Moz, yeah. you know, every time you would do one of those major updates. Brendan and I would look at that and be like, look at this, look at that. Oh, this thing. Oh, we should try it. Like, it was crazy, like the learning that could come from what you've yeah. done. And I mean, your book, there's so many other things to like talk about. But I also, I mean, it's it's been very cool to see what you're doing with SparkToro and to see you whip up magic again. Um, and even in how the business is structured, right? And, and for investors, I invested in SparkToro. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. But maybe you can explain to folks who don't know what it is, like one, like what the company is, and two, the, how the structure is different, like how you're doing it differently this time to try to to make things not end up the same way. Yeah, yeah, no, that's and that's that's exactly the goal. It's it's really weird because I, you know, Chris, I think that one of the problems is people might listen to a story like this one and say, oh. Well, you know, Rand raised a bunch of money in venture, you know, had this whatever tough career with ups and downs and, and Moz didn't get to the place that, you know, he sort of hoped it would, but it sounds like he still made some money. So, you know, maybe this is a good path. And I want to be like, no, friends, no. Like, first off, you know, almost no founders in venture world own even 10%, maybe five, less than 5%. I think the average is, is something like at, at IPO or sale time. The average founder owns like four percent of their company. Yeah. Right. Insane. So, you know, I'm an extreme exception in terms of that. And that was just, you know, virtue of, I guess, making some some good decisions around the funding thing and not being not giving into the pressure of like, hey, take more dilution, but take more money because then you can do more but things. But you right? also you you have always been one of those people who you know how to tell a story and you know what people are feeling and the problems that people have. And I, I feel like I've always seen you just like teach and educate. Hmm. 
teach and educate over and over and over and over. I mean, that's what you're doing right now. Like you're sharing stuff that for most people is really hard to share. And I feel like you almost see it as like a duty. Like this is my, yeah. my duty is to help other people by educating them. And like, I mean, you're doing that with Moz in like sure. amazing yeah, ways, yeah. right? And so it's not a surprise to me that you're still doing it. It's not a surprise to me that you ended up in a different spot. But if someone's going to take something from it, yeah. I mean, take that part. Yeah. So certainly I think there's there's a lot of value in giving before you expect something in return, right? And mm -hmm. that um, that that's proven true uh, at Moz and, and SparkToro. Um, but also, you know, when I think about what I would like for the future. And, and you sort of asked about like, hey, can you tell us about SparkToro and like why you're doing all this stuff differently, right? The goal is very different this time. So venture-backed business, right? Your goals are hyper growth at all costs, right? It's, it's sort of extraction of value. Creation of value is nice, but extraction of value is, is the important thing, right? Like your, your goal is to 10X your investor's return, hopefully 100X it or more. Um, or die trying, right? Die in the business sense, right? Because you know the the overwhelming majority. I think it's you know something like ninety three out of a hundred venture investments fail to return their minimum uh, investment, and more than eighty five out of a hundred um, are basically sold for a loss. You know they don't yeah. they don't make back one x, which means no one but maybe the founder gets rewarded at all, and a lot of times not even the founder. So you know again, Moz weirdly seems like a kind of stuck in the middle, maybe it did okay, but it's probably in the 90th percentile of venture-backed companies and yet still didn't do very well. It's, it's just weird. The mathematics of that whole ecosystem are really problematic. And you know, when you think about like a lot of the things that people talk about economically in the US and beyond, it's like wealth inequality and distribution of resources. And venture is as guilty as anything, right? As bad as hedge funds, maybe not quite that bad, but like almost <laughs> uh, in terms of what it does to the environment, right? It essentially says, hey, whatever, Travis Kalanick, you get you know, $10 billion, uh, 10,000 other founders and the 10 million people who, all, who work for all those companies, you get virtually nothing, right? You're sort of undercompensated compared to what you could get at normal company, right? Big, big tech co. Um, and so with SparkToro, similar to Wistia, right? A, a lot of what we're trying to do is build a company that is focused on long-term survival, long-term profitability. We pay dividends to our investors. So, you know, Chris, one of the one of the great things, I just got our August financials. Um, and we we technically have enough money to repay our investors, the the one X, which is yeah, you know, which is incredible, right? It's it's only been yeah, like two and a half years since launch. Uh, not even, and this you know this business is growing almost as fast as Moz did in its first three years, but with you know far more capital constraints and um, and a yeah. team of only three people, right? It's just myself, Casey, and Amanda. Uh, our big goal is let's build something that can survive for a long time, provide lots and lots of value to our customers and and to our audience, right? To the people who, who want to learn from us give us a great life, right? Like Amanda and Casey and I should have great lives that are happy and filled with all the things that you might want from a great job um, in terms of the relationship we have with each other and with our audience and customers and how many hours we have to work, which you know we try and keep it so that none of us ever have to put in more than 20 or 30 hours a week. Oftentimes we do, but we don't have to. Right. Yeah. So like just having that freedom and flexibility is super important to us. And we're not willing to compromise on that to whatever, put our nose to the grindstone and try and extract more faster growth. Right. We believe that in fact, SparkToro will do better if we make better decisions by getting more sleep and having happier home lives and, you know, whatever. The long-term approach. Yeah. yeah invest yeah. in all those personal things. So super different goals and outcome than venture backed. And the problem, the problem as I see it is media and, and the cultural environment and the startup world don't respect that. You know what they do? They call it a lifestyle business. And they do that pejoratively to insult people mm -hmm. like us who want to yeah. have great lives in addition to great businesses and want to distribute wealth 
rather than concentrated in a few hands. And I don't have angry words that are strong enough for that kind of behavior and that type of brainwashing. And I hope it can stop. But the only, you know what, the only way I think it can stop is if Spark Toro, Wistia, companies and, in, and investment vehicles that are alternatives do incredibly well. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking about micro acquire. Basically, for those who don't know, it's a marketplace where a lot of like small SaaS companies and stuff can find a home. Like someone can build something that gets to a million in revenue, half a million in revenue, two million in revenue, and someone else can come along and say, like, oh, I find value in that and I'll buy it. Or you can actually try to get the work life synergy going where you can work on hard problems for a long time. And I, I just think that it's it's very hard to do that when you're on someone else's timeline. That's what I think about a lot with like the funding is like it forces a different timeline. And also the I think part of it too for for a ton of the the startup ecosystem is that they make it all about the founder, right? Like, oh, founders, you're so important and you should be rewarded and you're the risk takers. And because of that message repeated over and over and the sort of worship and the interviewing and the amplification and you know the stages and all this stuff, the awards, a lot of founders start to believe that they are better and more deserving than everyone else on their team. And that it's okay if, you know, I think it maybe it is okay if you make what was the average in 1950, right? That the CEOs of most companies would make. As a multiple, yeah. Yeah, the yeah, multiple yeah. was like 10 to 20x what, what, what an average employee would make. Seems pretty reasonable, not like completely out of, out of whack. A hundred, a thousand, 10,000? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Something's, something's messed up, right? And yet this environment has made a lot of us start to believe that that's okay. Uh, and I don't think it is. It also made me think about... Um... I think it was, didn't you just read like the, I, th I feel like you just shared the Derek Sivers book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember that talk he gave about like the first follower? No, I don't. I'm not sure I saw that one. Definitely worth watching. Basically, it's this talk of, uh, there's just someone dancing at a festival. There's music playing and one person gets up and starts dancing. And they're like having a great time and they're moving and everyone else is, like sitting on this uh, hill. And um, it takes like guts to be the first person. But it's also like the first person's kind of crazy. Like they're just up there <laughs> getting wild. They don't they don't really care. And then the moment there's a second person, like the first follower, then that person took a risk because like, am I crazy to dance like this person up here? Or is this actually the new hot thing? This is going to turn into a thing. Yeah. And so they get up there and then very quickly, there's like a third person and a fourth. And then suddenly the video is incredible because it starts. I'm getting chills thinking of the video. It starts so slow. And once that second person gets out there, it ends up being like thousands of people dancing or wow. something. Everyone on the hill is out there. And it's about the power of that first follower hmm. and the first person who takes a risk. And I think a lot about that with like your early team of anyone who comes in at the beginning and believes in it is a signal and shows like, hey, this could be something. I believe in this opportunity. I am going to work like crazy. I'm going to figure this out. Like they deserve so much credit and reward for that. So that's a great shout out. Um, wow, we were going so deep on so many interesting topics. And I really want to make sure that people understand what Spark Tarot is. Oh, sure. And also I want to talk about like, we just were at Inbound yesterday and we were talking about how you stand out with an audience. Mm. And like you you and Amanda have been doing some amazing work on this. Oh, thanks, yeah. So I, I would love for you to also like talk about that sure. and zero click content and all of this. Yeah, yeah. So. Um... First off, I've explained SparkToro a ton of different ways, and I think I found one that uh, that works nice. the best, right? <laughs> so it, as, a, as a marketer or a product builder or an entrepreneur or someone who's building a podcast, right, trying to build an episodic series, um, a newsletter, whatever it is, right? One of the things that you really want to do is have a deep understanding of what your audience is thinking about, talking about, how they behave, their, their demographics, their geography, the sources of influence that they pay attention to, like what other email newsletters they subscribe to and what YouTube channels they subscribe to and what subreddits do they read and you know who do they follow on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and et cetera, et cetera. And the best way to do that, absolute best way to do that is get uh, the home address of all your potential customers, right? Their, their uh, physical address where they live. 
learn uh-huh. lock picking, break into their house, <laughs> uh, steal their phone, right? Steal their yeah. phone and then get their unlock code and go through everything that they subscribe to, right? Like you go into their email mm-hmm. and you like mm-hmm. download everything. Mm-hmm. And then I like this approach. Yeah, yeah. this is innovative. No, no, yeah. it, highly, highly effective. Super legal, super legal. Super illegal and completely <laughs> unethical. I recommend that no one ever do this. Um, this is, you know, it's Cambridge Analytica times 10. But you know what's incredible? What's incredible about the modern day that we live in is tons of people put this information publicly online. You just have yeah. to go crawl it, right? So like if yeah. you go visit my Twitter profile, you will see that it, you know, it links to my website and my website links to my Instagram and my Facebook and my, you know, LinkedIn and my YouTube and right, all these places. If you go to my YouTube, you'll see all the channels I'm subscribed to. If you go to my Reddit, you'll see all the subreddits I'm subscribed to and all the comments I've ever left. All this information is just sitting there, but getting it, acquiring it all for one person is just a royal pain in the butt. Acquiring it for like 10,000 people who are part of the audience you want to reach, so much work, like super annoying. And so Casey and I with SparkToro said, we should just do this for the entire internet. Like, let's just do it for everyone. And that's what SparkToro is. You, you are able to go to the homepage. You can sign up for free. We, we will never charge you. You can use it free forever. It's not a 30-day trial or anything. It's just free. You can go and search for like, my uh, audience uses these words in their profile. Like they call themselves interior designers. And uh, I only want to look at the ones in Canada because that's where I'm starting my lighting design business or whatever. And SparkToro will tell you, oh, okay, well, we have, you know, 7,212 interior designers in Canada, and you can see that 16% of them, you know, read this um, publication and 12% follow this podcast and 11% uh, pay attention to this YouTube channel and 36% are men and 64% are women and 2% are non-binary. Like all that data is just right there. It takes less than 30 seconds. It's very convenient. Like, it is ludicrous to me that someone hasn't done this before. I don't understand how is SparkToro the first people to do this in like, you know, we launched in 2020 and it's just wild. Like that data has been there for 10, 12 years. Just seems obvious that that someone should make this. So we had to do it. And I think like, it's also worth saying that, you know, you've said this before and I, I love this way of thinking about it, which is like, how do you get in front of your audience? Well, someone already is and just find out who those people are. It's that simple. There's there's two ways to think about that, right? Someone's already in front of your audience. Your audience is already paying attention to many different things, right? In different percentages. And so if you wanna prioritize your media plan, your advertising, your PR, your content marketing, your outreach, yeah. your guest posting, like whatever it is, you should know those numbers. And also if you wanna learn from the people who are successful, hey, how did they do that? How did they build that audience? What? what oh, I should pay attention to this. It's not this person who's had a ton of success reaching exactly this group. It's this person. Mm-hmm. Go figure out what they're doing right. Go follow them and pay attention to them. Go invite them to be a guest on your webinar, at your conference, on your podcast, on your blog, right? The number of things you can do with this data just on the marketing side is huge. Then there's tons of yeah. advertising applications, obviously. There's lots of like yeah. sponsorship and co-marketing stuff. And there's tons of product building intuition here too, because SparkToro will tell you things like, here are the interests and words and phrases that these people are you know, posting about and talking about, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's almost overwhelming in terms of the opportunity. Like I sometimes when you look at something, it's like too much opportunity, no one knows where to start. I'm glad you said those examples, because I think that is that is the way to think about it. As, and that's, as- the biggest, that's the biggest problem we have with SparkToro right now is a lot of people will use it and then you know they'll cancel their account. They'll be like, to be honest, this data is amazing. I'm just not sure what I'm supposed to do with it. So the people who have the most success with SparkToro generally, they tend to be folks who are like, I need to solve this problem, right? I am trying to solve the problem of what content should I create or where should I focus my advertising? Or a lot of agencies are like, my clients need to know where to do their marketing and advertising. Those are huge. And I think for a lot of folks, they hear about SparkToro, they find the information interesting, but they don't know how to apply it. What's great is that's okay by us. It's totally fine. Yeah. You can come, you can see it, you can check it out. And then six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, you'll be like, 
oh man, I really need to solve this problem. Oh, Spark Toro would help me do that. And that's great, right? We don't have to get you, you know, it's not like Moz where it's like, oh man, how do I can convert you to a customer as quickly as possible and as many of you as possible? Spark Toro, we can be patient, right? We can let yeah, people- Yeah, it's back to that longevity, yeah. the long game. Yeah, you can play a totally different game. Play a play totally different game. game. Um, Explain what zero click content is, please. <laughs> so Amanda, Amanda Natividad, um, our, our VP of marketing, came up with this concept, right? She was basically reading some of the stuff that the, the research that we'd been doing around like um, essentially zero click searches in Google, where you, mm -hmm. you know, two thirds of Google searches, when you get to Google, you search for, I don't know, how old was Queen Elizabeth? And they're like, okay, you know, and, and Google just provides the answer, right? They're like, oh, she was 96 and here's a ton more information. You don't have to click on anything, right? And more than two thirds of searches end without a click. They don't go anywhere else on the internet. They just stay inside Google's ecosystem. And just for people to understand, like, when did that, when was it that none of it was zero click? What was um, the last time? I think that it was some of it was always zero click, right? Google, all, okay. you know, for a long time, Google's had, for example, the weather widget right? Since like yeah, 2003 yeah, yeah. or four. But okay. yeah, I mean, certainly when Google came out in 1997, right? Larry and Sergey wrote this thing about how we want you to come to Google and we want you to leave as fast as possible. Yes. We're trying to get you out to the rest of the open web. Our goal is to provide value to the open web, right? We're this, we're this portal to the open web. And, and they, you know, they railed against folks like AOL and Yahoo who tried to keep people in their ecosystem. And then they lived long enough to become the villain in their own story. Uh, and that classic, you know, yeah. that sort of sucks for, for that's how the arc goes, right? Hero, villain, then maybe hero again. We just have to wait and see. I mean, it's crazy <laughs> that, you know, when I think about Jerry Yang, I'm like, ooh, you know, not not died, but like sort of economically died a hero. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, yep. Tom from MySpace died a hero, <laughs> right? Economically, right? <laughs> That company oh died a hero. Okay, okay, okay. So I I interrupted you though. So. No, so so zero click, right? Zero click searches are one thing, and then you know Amanda sort of realized that this doesn't just apply to the world of search. Social media is exactly like this. TikTok doesn't even let you leave TikTok. Instagram barely lets you leave Instagram. Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter—they have all started prioritizing content that keeps you in the ecosystem rather than sends you out. So historically. What a lot of marketers would do across, you know, social networks, uh, email newsletters, search content that was made for search, the SEO or or paid search, their goal was take you out of the environment where you see the content and come to our property, our web property, our page, our video, whatever it is. And now yeah. that that is a very unsuccessful strategy. Like structuring your marketing around the idea that you can drag people away from the platforms that are trying to keep them is just, you're fighting against the current. And so Amanda realized what you should do is go with the current, create value uh, and build awareness, build your brand, build interest in your product, do education, all these kinds of things on the platform. Inform people through search, through that featured snippet of the information that you want them to get so that you get some value in the future, even though you can't measure it, even though you'll never know that the person saw that, you'll never know that you, know, you didn't get the click, you won't be able to track it. Send that tweet thread, right? The tweet storm that tons of people see has you know, a million impressions and thousands of retweets, even though you can't measure any value that you got from it. Put your video on YouTube where you get subscribers and generate impressions, but you can't see any clicks coming directly back to your website. All of this stuff. Send an email newsletter that is pure value. No one ever has to click and go to your site. So it, maybe it looks like some people opened it, but you just don't know. You can't track this impossible to track, but incredibly valuable. And in playing to the incentives of the platform system is what she calls zero click content. And it is an incredibly successful way to build a brand online today. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you said a lot of stuff in there that it's like scary to folks, but I think really important to like, you know, wrap your mind around about not being able to track, about building a brand, which is like the feeling and an idea in someone's mind that's so strong that they will come back. And when they do search, you know, they type in Spark Taro, they type in Wistia, they go direct, right? 
It's a direct organic. It's the classic. It's Dark the, traffic, right? Like a ton yeah. of this is going to show up in your, you're going to look at your referrals and be like, I don't know, I guess branded search is everything. <laughs> and, and guess what, friends? Branded search doesn't exist in a vacuum. No one goes to yeah. Google and searches for your brand unless you somehow got them already thinking about you. Unless they actually care. Yeah. And I think it's funny because of course it makes perfect sense, right? Like all the social channels want to keep people on their site. They all make money with advertising. So people stay on the site, more ads, more time. So it's like, we're basically saying like, you're going to build on rented land, but you're going to know that if you build an actual connection to folks, the rented land might change and another one might pop up. Like TikTok's perfect example, Become it's becoming more and more relevant yep. every day. Yep. Um, but it works when you are actively not linking out and you are making something that by itself is genuinely valuable. That's so, I, yeah, that's super interesting. I was just thinking, because even for talking too loud, I'm always like, should we say like, listen here and then put the link to the, and, and really what you're saying is like, that's almost wasted real estate. Like, in fact, I think in many algorithms, it doesn't work. Yeah. Like we've done tests yeah. with the link in on LinkedIn versus not. Yeah. It does better without the link. So Sylvie, I have found this is, this is what's awesome. I love this. Uh, like you can see this in your own data. So yeah. take a clip from this episode, right? Put some captions in it, make the clip like two minutes long. So you can put it on Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram and whatever, right? Like all the channels, no link, no mention of the, the, you know, whatever show or anything, just have the name of the show, like in the, in the corner. And then if, if the clip is really good and really engaging and you can share it, you know, in a super engaging way, you'll see that like thousands of people will watch it. You can look at the link LinkedIn analytics or the Twitter analytics, whatever. Right. And then the same day that it's posted, go look at your um, Google search traffic for the branded term with the name of the show. And it's crazy. Like I can see this so many times, right? I'll post something that's like a, hey, here's this thing about Spark Toro. I'll post it on LinkedIn. I'll see that it gets, you know, a thousand uh, people watch the video, watch 75% of the video or more. I'll go look in whatever Google Search Console or I'll go look in, in GA and I'll see this spike in like branded visits. And I'm just like, there you go. Look at that. Beautiful. Yeah. And if you put the link in, LinkedIn is like, no, no, we're not going to show this post to anyone. Links suck. Go away. <laughs> What's well, also interesting, because I remember the first time we did a branded ad for Wistia. And I don't know if you remember this thing called the Deck Network. It was mm. like an ad network. There was one ad per page. Okay. It was on like the 37 Signals blog. Oh, and it yeah. was on Daring Fireball and a few other things. And it was six grand a month. One ad. And I think our revenue at the time was eight grand a month, if I remember correctly. Oh. And we could try four different ads or something. And we did the four. And the one that ended up working was a picture of a t-shirt. Yeah. And it just said, Wistia, share video like a boss. And that um, wasn't working because people were clicking the link. It was working. You could see it when that went live. People were searching like share video like a boss and sh searching for Wistia. And we saw the bumps in the traffic. And it ended up all being like, essentially came up as like direct and search for Wistia at a time when we had so little traffic that I could... It was undoubtable. Like, you could see every single is, one. Yeah. I know exactly what you're saying. This is exactly what is driving people to Plus, nothing back else. then, Google would tell you what keyword people searched for. That was helpful. Yeah. Uh, that was very helpful. Now they won't tell you. <laughs> a yeah. different time. A different time. But I think about that because sometimes now, if we have too many things going on, it's like even hard. It's almost like why it's important to have sub brands for certain things. At the very least, you can justify at some point, like, yes, the connection's there. Because you just have to see it a few times. And then you can go back and say like, all right, we can look at the view count, the engagement on LinkedIn or these are on TikTok and we can have an understanding of how well it's doing, but it's creating that link. It's just, it's just wild because yeah. marketers 10 years ago, 12 years ago, were trained not to report those, those vanity metrics, likes, yeah. shares, follows, impressions on we social. We made so much fun of that. Yeah. yeah we would make like, fun of it. We'd go, yeah. You'd go to yeah. inbound, you'd go to MozCon and you'd be like, oh, this is, you know, that's crap. These You're stupid vanity metrics. Let me show you the real shit. The real, <laughs> the, the real metrics. And now vanity metrics are the only thing, right? Vanity metrics are like how you measure the lift. It's, you know what it's a lot like? It's a ton of how big brands in the 20th century measured brand yep. lift when they would do campaigns, right? So Coca-Cola would be like, yep. hey, let's do a radio campaign in Cleveland. 
and a different one in Cincinnati. And we're going to see which one worked better. And then we're going to measure in-store sales lift. Well, it's funny you say that because we're doing brand surveys now. Oh, interesting. How's like twice a year, basically we, we go and we like hire panelists. Like Qualtrics uh, or SurveyMonkey or whatever. Yeah. And, and basically it's like, Hey, here are the bunch of people who we believe to be in our target. What is our brand awareness in that target? What do they think that we are like all this stuff? And we look at that because we needed something that was external that would give us some more perspective on how, like basically on opportunity, like how well are we doing in the market, like writ large versus like in our own data, we can see mm. numbers going up and down, but we wanted some kind of perspective and it's been helpful yeah. because there's certain things that people are like, oh yeah, they know you, but they think you're like X. That's the jump. And it's like, okay, well now we're X and Y and Z. Right. And so it's clear that even just like shifting the message slightly, but I never thought we'd do this. That's my point. Like it seemed crazy to do this when you have all this data that you'd think, but so much of it, as you said, with the keywords, like we used to, be able to see what keywords people are searching for. And now you can't. Nope. <laughs> it's wild. It's and, a and different so much world. of it is dark traffic too, right? So like even when you get a click from Facebook, if it's a mobile click, it'll show as dark traffic, meaning no refer, right? Yeah. Uh, TikTok comes without a referrer string. So if someone does click on a TikTok profile and then click to you, you like you can't see it. Um, the other interesting one is, I believe it's YouTube, the YouTube link that's under the video for a long time. Like they, they weren't passing those. It's just, it's silliness, you know? So it is silliness. It's crazy. Rand, thank you so much. Uh, I could talk to you for so long about this stuff. And unfortunately we're supposed to keep this to like an hour and not like two hours fair enough fair but will enough. you will you come back sometime i will i will yeah cut out all the cruft from this one and then like you know make the episode and then we'll <laughs> distill uh all those extra bits into what we should talk about next time perfect and where can people connect with you if they're not connected with you yet online so i am most active on twitter where i'm at randfish um but i'm i'm also reasonably findable on linkedin and, and post there pretty often and if you want to try out SparkToro, you can obviously do that at uh, sparktoro.com. Okay. Last question. Every good marketing strategy starts with blank, fill in the blank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, deep understanding of your audience. Awesome. Thank you so much, sir. Good to see you. This is a delight as always. Lovely to see you too. Rand is someone who just is so unafraid to share. I think he might be afraid of not sharing. Like, I almost feel like he's that type of person. He's like, if I don't tell you this, if I don't tell you the full story of what everything I'm thinking that I didn't, I didn't do my job. Like I didn't do it. Yeah. I think you even said it in the interview. Like he feels a duty to kind of like teach based on his own personal experience, which is kind of a, it's a hard thing to do. Like, to go through something that is dynamic and has twists and turns and like be yeah. very reflective and introspective about it, but then like let other people into that. Like I didn't know, I didn't know all the the ins and outs of Moz and and like what that meant for him and what that meant for other employees there. And and he just he dove in. Well, he you know he used to do this annual report on Moz, and it was like exactly how many customers they had, exactly what their revenue was, a bunch of other stuff. And I remember, I mean, I mentioned the interview, but I remember like he'd do this and and Brennan and I would pour through it and we'd talk about it and we'd be like, oh, this thing's working, this thing's not. And it was kind of like, there's this, there's this big thing about like building in public now um, for startups as a way to like market themselves. Like you just share your numbers in public. And Rand was the first person I saw do that. But I'll never forget actually, that one point I was asking him about that. I'm like, oh, it's really cool that you do that. Do you think we should do it? He's like, you should share some stuff. Yeah. Um, but, but I would not get on a schedule where you always share the exact same thing. Because yeah. like when things are good, it's really easy to do. But when you hit a speed bump, which we all hit at some point, it gets quite hard to share. And some speed bumps when you hit and you share, it makes you do worse than better, right? No, that totally, I mean, it totally makes sense. Like- Having too much information can be overwhelming. It can cause anxiety. It can like make people act 
erratically. So yeah, you kind of have to pick and choose. Gotta pick and choose. You gotta pick and choose. It seems like a time when you don't really have to pick and choose is with your audience. It's like you're always kind of being straight with them. There's no, I can't see a lot of downside to being anything but transparent. Well, it's funny you say that because I feel like, you know, we did this recording yesterday live. And um, if you listen to the episode, it's coming out out next week or the week after. I just keep doing this because I don't know when and now. Oh, it's coming out in the future. But when you listen to the inbound episode, um, it was funny that we were talking about what we're talking to. I won't ruin it by sharing a story. And I was like. I kind of can't believe I'm saying this story out loud to an audience of a thousand people. Yeah. Like, this is so weird. And I noticed after the fact, like, oh, I've trained myself because of the show to get comfortable sharing in this venue these certain types of things. Sure. And I think it's been an interesting process for me in terms of like, wow, it really it has given me more confidence that I can share this stuff. And hopefully folks are getting something out of it in terms of like, yeah, sometimes things are really good and sometimes they're not. Or like we are learning about different topics that like um, I might not have ever said to anybody that I was learning about. So it is it's very cool to see that. But I also have like parts of my life that aren't in this at all. Totally. And so it's just always trying to figure out like when is it helpful to share? When is it? It's a, I mean, it's a, I think it's an interesting challenge for anyone who's trying to build an audience. It's like, where do you draw that line? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if Rand has a line. He doesn't really seem to have a line, no. Um, <laughs> but that's what makes him Rand. That's the beauty of Rand. That's the beauty of Rand. Um, our line, though, I think is here. So the line is here. What we'll say is, thank you so much. If you're still with us, we yeah. love you. Uh, and um, <laughs> please don't forget to rate and review the you show. Wherever the you cross the line, Chris. You oh. just crossed the line. Oh, yeah. I shouldn't have said love. Take, have scratch said love. that. Can you cut that in the edit? <laughs> Um, we like you very much. We appreciate you. <laughs> if you have feedback on the show or ideas, you can always email us at ttlpod at wistia.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can subscribe at wistia.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, I think that's it. That's the line. That's the line. Well, I'll see you in two weeks, Sylvie. Deuces. I gave you the deuces sign. Thank you. Thank you for that. Keeping, you know, tennis always front and center. Always end with tennis. <laughs> Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia, hosted by Chris Savage, produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day, executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com. <laughs>